Good morning. Very good. Uh, let's turn again in our Bibles to the book of Acts. I bet you thought we'd never get back there. Chapter 10. If you weren't here last week, I don't know what to tell you. We're certainly not going to try to recap that whirlwind tour of Daniel 70 weeks. We'll just say that uh, in the study of that wonderful prophecy last week, we saw clearly that um, God had laid aside the nation of Israel, replaced it with the Gentiles in the place of blessing, and we actually saw Jesus do that in the book of Matthew as we went through chapter 21 and a little after. Uh, I love doing things like that in the scripture where you see God saying he's going to do something and then actually see it worked out in real history. We're going to see it again now in the book of Acts chapter 10 because the Lord has already judged the nation of Israel, but nobody knows it except God. And he needs to make that clear now to the believers. Right now, the believers are all Jews. That's not the sort of thing they want to hear. Least of all, do they want to start preaching to Gentiles? But that's the Lord's plan. He has judged the nation of Israel, laid it aside, and it is now the Gentiles who are going to be the focus of uh, the ministry of the gospel. So he needs to turn a corner here in the lives of the believer and he, believers, and he does it in chapter 10, and he uses Peter to do it. So keep in mind now what we talked about last week, that God has already laid aside the nation of Israel, and he's going to now turn to the Gentiles. We're actually going to see uh, the beginning of that right here. Chapter 10 of Acts, verse 1. We'll just comment as we go. Uh, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. That's a Gentile. This man is not a Jew. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, what time is that? Three o'clock in the afternoon. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Pause there. I love this passage. It's, it's much like uh, when Saul got saved. Remember, the Lord spoke to two individuals separately to prepare them to meet each other. He, talk, he, he revealed to Saul that somebody named Ananias would be coming. And then he revealed to Ananias that he should go see this guy, Saul. The Lord is working. Remember, keep that in mind as we go through. The Lord is building his church. And I love it when he arranges these divine appointments and brings people together for his purposes. So first he begins with Cornelius, the Gentile who is seeking God, who wants answers. Now he's going to go to Peter and he times it perfectly, by the way. Uh, the Lord waits 
until the messengers from Cornelius are just walking up the road almost to get to Simon the Tanner's house where Peter is. So that when he gets done talking to Peter, as Peter is trying to figure out what's going on, the guys ring the doorbell and it all fits. The next day, as they went on their journey, verse 9, and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. This is noon the next day. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. Not surprising, it's lunchtime. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. I love Peter. You notice what he said there? Not so, Lord. It's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? (laughs) But you can understand his conscience. He had been raised as a good Jew and knew that these were unclean animals and they'd been commanded not to eat them. So uh, don't be too hard on the guy. But the thing is, it's the Lord speaking to him and he's trying to teach him something. So God repeats it. Verse 15. And a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. God is not teaching Peter just about eating habits here. He's teaching him that the Gentiles are not uh, unclean in his sight. They shouldn't be. Uh, God is preparing him now to preach to unclean Gentiles. Now, while Peter wondered, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 16, this was done three times. If God repeats something, he wants to emphasize it. He really wants to get the point across to Peter here. And the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, here's the timing. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Isn't that great? I love the timing on that. Just as Peter is wondering, now how, how does all this fit? Here come the man right up and uh, knock on the door. <clears throat> 18, and they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. A couple of things here. Notice the personality of the Holy Spirit. He speaks. He's not a thing. He's not an object. He is the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit goes on to say, Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Remember as you're reading this, the the hurdle that God is having to overcome in Peter's life. Peter's a Jew. Gentiles are unclean, or they're sometimes derogatorily called dogs. And these guys that have come to ask him to come with them are Gentiles. Normally, uh, he would not be interested. And that's why the Spirit says, doubting nothing, because I have sent them. Overcome your prejudices here and uh, just go with the program. You'll find out what's going on. Verse 21, then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, 
I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? Verse 22, And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Okay, let's follow them here. Verse 24, And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. This is a great way to build a church, isn't it? Huh? As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Key verse, verse 28. Then he said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. There it is. We're seeing Daniel 9 worked out here in history. Isn't this neat? You're seeing God turn the corner right here in the lives of men. Now, let's pause for a minute. It would be nice to think that in this simple lesson, Peter had learned it, he understood it all, and from here on out, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Well, if Peter just said, he's a man, just like Cornelius, and we're going to find, as we're going to look at the rest of the scripture, he struggled with this even later in his life. It's not, Peter's not, uh, doesn't have deep problems, he's just a guy. And even though he says here in his brain, it's going to take a while for it to work down into his heart to where he really accepts the idea that the Gentiles are now on a level with Jews. Verse 29, therefore I came without objection, which I would have had, in other words, as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, and he repeats uh, the vision that he had from God. We'll skip down now, after he finishes, to verse 34. After hearing Cornelius' story, Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. He's going to preach the Lord Jesus now. He's going to preach the gospel. He's going to lead into it, and we'll see what happens. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began with Galilee, from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness, here's a key phrase now, 
that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. There's the gospel. Praise God. Right now, that's a simple sentence. I can tell you it's still true. Whoever believes in him will receive remission or forgiveness of sins. Isn't that great? Well, it was good news to Cornelius and those that heard because we find out, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Why? Because they believed it. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. <laughs> that Peter and all the fellow Jews with him are astonished. Why? Because God treated the Gentiles just like the Jews. How do we know that? Think about it. How do they know that the Holy Spirit had come upon the Gentiles? You, you can't see the Holy Spirit. Very important, we find out. Uh, they were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How did they know? Verse 46. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. What does that remind them of? Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the day they first received the Holy Spirit. They know very well what this is picturing. And they're shocked that God would do the same thing to the Gentiles as happened to the Jews. This is revolutionary, brothers and sisters. I love reading this kind of stuff. We're used to it now, you know. Here we are, mostly Gentiles. Noah's not here today. Uh, and we take it for granted. You know, here we're a bunch of Gentiles opening this Jewish book talking about a Jewish Messiah to each other. It wasn't like that in the beginning. And to get here from there took some doing on the part of God. And we see it right here happening. So, uh, by the way, and here uh, is a wonderful illustration of God's use of this gift of speaking in tongues, which is speaking in a foreign language, not babbling incoherently. The languages that were listed in chapter 2, remember, about a dozen or so of them. God was using it in a very special way as a sign to the Jews. It was a sign to the Jews. Peter tells us that in 1 Corinthians 14, so we don't have to guess at that, doesn't he? And th that is so neat because when Peter tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 that uh, speaking in tongues was a sign to the Jews, he refers back to a prophecy in Isaiah where Isaiah is speaking to the Jews at that time, 700 B.C., saying, you know the verse that the Lord is talking and he says, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. You know that verse. It's the verse right before the verse that um, Peter, uh, Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians. And what God is saying there, he's saying to the Jews, I spoke to you in very clear terms, precept upon precept, Line upon line, here a little, there a little. It was simple, clear language. And for all that, you didn't, you didn't listen. You didn't want to hear it. And so he goes on to say, and so I will speak to you uh, with people of another language, another tongue. What he's saying there is, he's talking about the Assyrians. They're going to come in. They're going to gather you guys up, haul you off to Assyria. And you're going to wake up in what was Nineveh, their capital, or wherever you're going to be taken, and you're going to be here all this talk around you in this foreign language that you're not going to understand. And when you do, you will know that I have judged you for your sin, for not listening to me. That's what he's saying. 
You wouldn't listen to him when I spoke plainly, so you're going to hear a language that you don't understand as a sign of judgment. You got that? Isn't that neat that God uses that now in the church <laughs> because he's judged Israel and he's saying the way you can know it is you're going, to you're going to hear these people speaking in a language that you don't understand. Another sign that he has judged them again. Well, he, it's also a useful sign for Peter and the other Jews too because it shows them that indeed the Gentiles are on the same footing as the Jews. Okay, well, uh, after hearing that, uh, Peter says, and listen to the way he says it, by the way. He could say, praise the Lord. Let's baptize these brothers and sisters. Look how he says it. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized? <laughs> you get that? In other words, uh, there probably is somebody here who objects, including me, but... Uh, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, and so let's baptize them. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Okay, and now, again, remember, Peter's just like us. It takes him a while to learn a lesson. Doesn't take, it takes me sometimes, the Lord has to repeat himself. Do you ever have to do that with you? And it's going to have to be true in the life of Peter, even Paul. And actually... I love the way the Lord finally got the message through because uh, one day Paul was writing a letter to the Ephesians, the Ephesian believers. And God decided at that point to just get hold of him and inspire words through him where he wrote down what we're talking about here, that Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ now. There's no difference anymore. So now we have it in writing is the point. Okay. Well, the uh, controversy is not over yet, as you can imagine, because now Peter's got to go back to Jerusalem. Remember where he is? Remember our map from a few weeks ago? Jop is on the coast. He went from there up to Caesarea. Now he's got to make his way back to Jerusalem because word is trickling back. Can you imagine this? Peter has gone and preached to Gentiles in their house. Oh, no. <clears throat> Verse 1, now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Ah, how could you do that? By the way, you may be wondering right now, why did God choose Peter to do this, to be the, the point man? Because after all, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, isn't he? We know that from the other scripture, and, and uh, Peter is the apostle to the Jews. I think the Lord did it for many reasons. He usually does things for more than one reason anyway. First of all, uh, I think he did it for Peter. So Peter could not deny that God had indeed given the gospel to the Gentiles. He, <laughs> he did it. You know, there's no getting around that. But I think also, if you think about it, if Paul had done it at this point, I think it would have been harder for him to answer the brethren back in Jerusalem that it's okay. You know, they're, they're still suspicious of Paul, a lot of them. But Peter, I mean, he's like number one apostle to a lot of them. And so I think, I think that's another reason God chose Peter. So that when, when it's Peter... You know, and he tells them what happened, then they can't argue with that. 
So they've challenged him now. You know, you went and you ate with uncircumcised men. How could you do such a thing? Here's his answer, verse 4. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If, therefore, God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? <laughs> okay, <laughs> right, Peter. That pretty much settles it, doesn't it? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Praise God. We're here today because God had a bigger heart than just for the Jews, huh? Praise God. He was after something a lot better. Can you imagine if Jesus had just been the Messiah for the Jews? That is, come, rule over them in Jerusalem like he'd been promised, and then we all die and go to hell. Praise God. He had a much greater purpose than that. And that is to bring men and women and children to heaven who trust in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile. Man. So, uh, now you'd think, having read that, okay, we're done. Situation's uh, settled. They all understand it. Nothing could be further from the truth. There is a, still an uphill battle here to get the Jews to turn the corner and accept that uh, the Gentiles are indeed the, on the same footing as the Jews. And so I thought it, I'd, in the remaining time it would be good just to look at a couple of places in the letters where, where God actually says that. He puts it in writing that indeed this is what happened so that now we can know for sure. I mentioned Peter. Turn to Galatians first of all. A very interesting passage now to correlate with what we just saw happen in Acts. Galatians was written in the late 40s A.D. probably. Now, Jesus was crucified in 33. The events that we just read at the house of Cornelius, we, we can't have an exact date, but we're about to come up to two known events in the book of Acts. They're right around the corner. Number one, Herod's going to die. And number two, there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem. We know the dates of both of those. They're in the mid-40s A.D., a little over 10 years after the Lord was crucified. So the gospel's been going out for about 
10 years by that point. The book of Galatians was written, say about 49 AD, a few years after that. So you got the timing there? So this thing with Cornelius and Peter happened sometime before 45 AD probably. And Galatians was written about 49, about four years later maybe. Let's see how Peter's doing on this subject. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes, now this book was written, it's one of the first books written uh, in the New Testament. Paul had just made his first missionary journey up through Turkey. And Galatia's right in the middle of Turkey. Several churches up in that area. I think Lystra's up there and Derby, and a few others. Okay, so Paul is writing back to them. He's writing to them because already the devil is bringing out a false gospel. It's a, it's a gospel, which is the kind we like to hear. Look, it's not just the grace of God that saves you. You can't just trust in Jesus and that's it. You've got to do something. You've got to keep the law also. Well, you believe in that, you're going to go to hell. You need to trust completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation and nothing else for the salvation. It's a serious issue. So he's writing to them about that. And as he begins the letter to them, he brings up Peter and uses him, unfortunately, as an example of what not to do. Galatians 2, verse 11. <clears throat> now, Paul writes this, when Peter had come to Antioch, that's his home church, remember, that's, that's where uh, he and Barnabas went out from, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. So they had potlucks or something up in Antioch while Peter and some of the brothers were there. And at these potlucks, Peter would come over, you know, like we do at our potlucks, and there's a seat next to a Gentile. And he'd sit right down and rub shoulders with him, eat next to him, probably talk to him, which he should. But when they came, that is these men from James down in Jerusalem, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So when these guys come up, the eating arrangements changed. The, the saved Jews would all kind of keep to themselves on one side of the room while the Gentiles are over here, second-class citizens. Well, that's not good, is it? That's not the way God wants it. So, and, and there, by the way, there's something very touching here. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. That just broke my heart when I read that. You remember Barnabas, that dear brother? The one that came and laid, sold the land and laid the money at the, the apostles' feet, basically saying, here, here it is, take it. In fact, he said, here am I, send me. Uh, Saul comes into town in Jerusalem as a brand new believer, wants to fellowship with the, with the Christians. What do they do? We don't want anything to do with you. Bless his heart. Barnabas goes and seeks him out at the risk of his own life. Here's his testimony. Physically brings them back to the brethren, including Peter. And says, listen, this guy's saved. Listen to his testimony. Broke the ice. Got, got Paul into the, the fellowship of the brethren. He's a dear brother, isn't he? Barnabas. And yet, can you imagine? Peter, the leader, and all the other Jews separating themselves. Barnabas looks around. Well, there's no Jews sitting over with the Gentiles. So he does the same. Turns his back on the Gentiles and go over and sits with the other Jews. 
Well, bless Paul's heart. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, you see how serious it is? He says they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Wow, this is not a small thing they're doing. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? And he goes on to rebuke them in front of all and say, basically, by what you're doing, you're making it appear that they need to be keeping the law and be circumcised and all that stuff that's required of Jews to be saved. That's wrong. That's heresy. Now, we're not getting on Peter. What we're seeing here is Peter's a man like you and me. And he didn't learn right away. And you can see the task that God had with the Jews to turn the corner and, and get off of... Remember we saw in chapter 11, we read it, when the Jews were scattered from the persecution of Stephen, they went and preached to who? Jews only. It, it was inconceivable that God would want to reach the Gentiles. And it took a long time for Peter to accept this. Uh, and in this groundbreaking letter listen to what else paul writes later look at chapter 3 verse 8 of galatians paul writes this and the scripture foreseeing that god would justify the gentiles by faith preached the gospel to abraham beforehand saying in you listen to this all the nations of the world will be blessed man we're way back at the beginning of the bible isn't that cool God said way back then to Abraham, what is it, chapter 12 or something, you know, or 15, in you, all the nations of the world, that includes the Gentiles, will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. I wasn't born a Jew, but I'm a child of Abraham. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're a child of Abraham now by faith. Not, not physically, but by faith, because Abraham is the ultimate example of faith. That is so neat. Um, and then later here in uh, chapter 3, verse 26, Paul writes it very plainly. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He, what he means there is Jews and Gentiles, all of you. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That Man, that's, that's earth-shaking language there. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Uh, there ought to be fireworks going off when you read those, those verses. It was just absolutely revolutionary what God was doing. And it still took Peter a while to learn. But uh, the, the ultimate statement, turn to Ephesians now where God says openly through another letter that Paul was writing to, to the Ephesians, as I said, he says it very clearly that there is this new thing called the church. It was hidden in the Old Testament. You're not going to find it. It's not there. It was in the heart of God. And in that church, the Jews and the Gentiles are now one. Uh, we'll begin in chapter 2. We'll just read through it, and you'll see the language here, how he says that over and over again. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, 
that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? And now we often quote that just in generally to talk about somebody who's far from God and they get saved. Well, that's a good application. But in the context, you who are far off, he's talking to whom? Gentiles. He's saying you Gentiles were far away, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Beautiful verse again, and we often quote that, he is our peace, and we use it generally to say he is our peace, which he is, but here he's talking about making peace between Jew and Gentile within the church. Made us both one. Broken down the middle wall of separation. It's an interesting phrase because uh, they've discovered archaeologically, I don't know if it's in Jerusalem or Caesarea, someplace, or Capernaum, someplace in Israel, they actually found uh, a wall physically that had uh, carved into it. it. It was either in a synagogue or in the temple. I can't remember where. But it carved into the wall was this phrase, Gentiles proceed beyond this point upon uh, penalty of their own lives. In other words, you can't go past this wall if you're a Gentile. If you're a Jew, you can go you know, all the way into the inner sanctuary or whatever. But if you're a Gentile, you've got to stay back here. So there actually was a physical wall of separation in the places of worship between the Gentiles and the Jews. And Paul says, that's broken down, that's gone. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. Who are the two? Jews and Gentiles. Thus, making peace. And that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. Far off Gentiles, near Jews. For through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father. We're not done yet. We're only halfway through. And you're saying, well, what is this all about? Why are we going on and on? If God devotes this much space in his word to this subject, it must be pretty important. And it was. And it still is. It's earth-shaking. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Praise God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now he's going to talk about the fact that this is a brand new thing. Nobody could have ever guessed this was going to happen because it's what God calls a mystery. And we're not talking about Sherlock Holmes or Dorothy Sayers or uh, people like that. A mystery in the Bible is something that God knew all along he was going to do, but nobody else knew it until it happened. And then he revealed it. Verse 1 of 3, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, 
by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the spirits to his holy apostles and prophets and now this verse i've got bracketed in red ink this is it this is the mystery the thing nobody knew was going to happen that the gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in christ through the gospel praise god and now we know that god has revealed it in his word here okay and then one one more pertinent scripture another letter that paul was writing and god at that point god hold of him was romans romans chapter 11 you know that uh there is a system of belief called amillennialism often associated with covenant theologians or people of that persuasion who teach that not only god did god lay the jews aside but he did it permanently and that he's through with them there's a big problem with that the biggest problem is that if you were to start right now and start reading through the prophets in the old testament beginning with isaiah and going through malachi you would find so many promises to that people that are literal that have not been fulfilled yet that if god's done with them he's a liar michael's doing it as an exercise right now in fact going through the and he's uh, astonished at the promises he's finding that are literal to that nation and yet you'll read these guys they write commentaries and it is incredible the gyrations they will go through to take a literal passage that talks about jerusalem and the land and the son of david uh, and so on and twist them into spiritual things and apply them to the church and say we now are the israel and we're getting all these promises and god says plainly here in, Ch- in romans 11 you can't do that because god doesn't lie and when he promises he does it but <clears throat> he does it in a wonderful way as we read through it so you can maybe understand a little better most of you know this he uses the illustration of a tree and the way he says it is in this tree there were these branches and those branches were the, were the jews the nation of israel and what god did was he, he reached in that tree and he, and he and he pulled those branches out was laying aside the nation and then he grafted in some branches that weren't naturally a part of the tree to begin with like we do with trees right and that's the gentiles it's a picture of how uh, he's pulled the jews out of the center of god's dealings and put us there instead what did jesus say we saw it in matthew he said the kingdom of god shall be taken from you and given to a nation producing the fruits thereof that's us and that's the picture that's in the tree but he's going to go on to say but if you think about it the the branches that really belong in the tree naturally are not us we're graftees <laughs> the ones that naturally belong there are the jews and he's going to go on to say in fact god will someday remove the gentiles from the tree from the center of god's favor and put the jews back in again why because god can't lie that's basically what he says verse 13 romans 11 for i speak to you gentiles Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. 
if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are, uh, are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in and among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Now, he's talking to the Gentiles, not to the church here. People read this and say, well, it's the church. No, it's the Gentiles as a, as a people. And when he says cut off, he's not saying you're going to lose your salvation. He's talking about removing the Gentiles as a body out of the place of favor. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. You notice how in his language he's kind of speculating. He hasn't said it definitely yet. It could happen. Verse 24, For if you were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. There it is again, mystery, a thing hidden. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. In other words, it's not permanent blindness. It's going to be cured in a later day. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And only God knows when that happens. I love that word fullness. God uses it a lot in the Bible. It's, it's when um, something in, in a nation or a people reaches a certain point, you know, and then it's time to take action. Only God can measure that. And here in uh, the times of the Gentiles win right now, there's going to come a time when their fullness is going to be reached. And only God knows when that is. And when that happens, he's going to, first of all, remove the church because you, he can't have two favored people here at the same time. Take the church away. Gentiles are removed and the, Gen and the Jews are going to be put back in and there will be seven years left of planet Earth three and a half of which are going to be absolutely terrible. And then Jesus is going to come physically the second time. So the fullness of the Gentiles, God's measuring that. I have a feeling it's getting very, very close. Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There it is. He's saying plainly, he's not finished with the nation of Israel. And he's quoting just one of thousands of Old Testament promises that will be fulfilled in that day. And then he finishes up, verse 28, Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election... Now, when you read that, you think, oh, that means the church. No, it's talking about the calling of God here in choosing the nation of Israel as his own people. That's what it's talking about. 
the, uh, concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay, there's our whirlwind tour in two weeks of the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's wonderful, isn't it? How the Word of God just fits together like this. We've looked at over a dozen books where it's very clear now what God has done in uh, laying aside the Jews, sending the gospel out to the whole world, creating this wonderful new thing called the church, of which if you know Jesus Christ, you are now a part. But uh, it would have been something for God to just abandon the Jews forever, but it's, it's so wonderful that he's going to return to them and, and uh, finish the work that he started with them. Okay, uh, as, as I read through this, I've been saying all along, in the book of Acts, we're watching Jesus act out the promise, I will build my church. And as I reviewed the things we've seen, there are so many activities that he is engaged in in building his church. Think about the things we've seen. First of all, uh, the numbers, just people getting saved. That's the first thing we think of. We saw in Acts several phrases, the Lord added daily. They were multiplied. Numbers of arithmetic, you know. Uh, beyond that, think of all the work the Lord Jesus is doing in building his church. He's giving spiritual gifts. When someone gets saved, he gives them one or more spiritual gifts to equip them for the work of the ministry. He is at work building up the saints, spiritual growth, not just individually, but corporately. Uh, we saw him expanding geographically that required effort on his part to get the saints to move out and preach the gospel. Uh, we're not just a big blob of people. There's structure within the church. There are elders. There are deacons. There are saints. He's working that out. He guides uh, his church. In the book of Acts, we've seen visions, <clears throat> prayer, direct intervention. <clears throat> He's the great shepherd of his church. He's protecting his church. He's busy, isn't he? I was thinking of all of the, you know, he's doing all this in a hostile environment. <laughs> and so we've seen persecution, opposition to try to ruin the work from the devil, from wicked men. False teaching tries to creep in. The false gospel talked about in Galatians. Here God uses his elders, by the way, in a great way to protect the church. False brethren, false believers, sin creeping in. Grievances, offenses, division, all of these things are efforts to try to thwart his work in building his church. And he is constantly on the alert, uh, protecting his church. This is part of his work. The New Testament. He wrote down the instructions for the church. Isn't that wonderful? We saw how it all fit together just on the uh, passing from the Jews to the Gentiles here in the scripture. And we know beyond that that he prays for us. He intercedes for us. Wow. Jesus is busy. Isn't that wonderful? He did a great work on the cross. It's called in Isaiah, the travail of his soul. And of course, he sat down and rested from that work. But that doesn't mean that he's not still working. He's very busy right now building his church. And you say, well, what on earth is Jesus doing today? Well, he's still doing the same thing. He's building his church. Here's evidence of it right here i wouldn't know you guys if it hadn't been for jesus you we wouldn't know each other except jesus wasn't building his church i think it's wonderful and so 
as I thought of that, I thought, that's what Jesus is doing. And he wants co-laborers. And you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be an elder to, to help in the work of building his church. Set up chairs. Uh, I was thinking, we were at here two weeks ago uh, on our Labor Day in taking care of the chapel. And uh, at one point, you would have seen all five of my family members with a different tool in their hand. I had the, what they call the string trimmer. Mike had the uh, pruners, and Dave had the uh, hedge trimmers. Carlene had a vacuum, and I think Amy had uh, some rags and some uh, harsh chemicals, she calls them, cleaning out uh, the room. And it's like that now. Jesus is building his church inside here, you know, not, not just uh, taking care of the ground. And as we look around the room, you don't see anything, but each person should have a different tool in their hand. He's given each one of us a tool to use in building up his church. A spiritual gift. What is it? Have you got it? Are you using it? Think about it. If that's what Jesus is continuing to do, it's a pretty important work. And you can't be doing anything greater than that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for all the work that you have done and are doing on our behalf. Lord, that you, the Lord, would be working for us. We think of how Peter said, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And we feel like saying that we are unworthy that you should put so much effort into such sinners as us. But Lord, we thank you that through your tireless efforts, you have saved our souls and brought us now into this family of God here, this, this local church. And we pray that by your grace, Lord, we might redeem the time, take up the tool that you have given us, and be found working alongside of you. Lord, nothing could please us more. We thank you for this wonderful privilege and opportunity and the fact that you loved us and gave yourself for us. In your precious name, amen.